This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Manique. Welcome back. It's been a while. I had to take a little break. It's getting a little worn out. And I also was in the process of selling my business, effectively selling what amounted to my day job. It took up a lot of brain cycles, and I just didn't have many left over to do the podcast. But I'm back now. Got a little bit more time, and I hope that I learned something during that period, being away. hope I have something meaningful to say. Who knows? You guys will have to tell me, or not. I've been thinking a little bit about ego, and for any of you who've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, you know that I talk about ego from time to time, and I continue to think about ego, pride. It's so curious. Ego, and it's something we really don't talk about much in our community. We do talk about pride, that's, that's true. We call pride a categorical evil. There have been all sorts of conference talks and Enzyme articles written about the evils of pride, the deleterious effects of pride, and I think most of us are familiar with that body of literature. Most of us can talk abstractly about pride, I think, but what we don't talk a lot about in our community is ego, or the ego. I mean, I think we have a superficial knowledge of ego. We know if there's some guy in the ward or in the neighborhood or something, or at the office who's got a big ego, we know what that means. It means the guy's conceited. He walks around thinking highly of himself, thinks he's great. Usually people who have big egos are not the type of people that most of us want to hang around with, and we use ego in that sense as a pejorative. Well, that guy, Jack, he sure has a huge ego, and that's not what I'm talking about or what I'm thinking about when I talk or think about ego. I don't mean to be condescending or come across as someone with a huge ego myself, but that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about some puffed-up guy or, or woman strutting around, acting like he or she is smarter than everyone else, better, stronger, better-looking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When I talk about ego, I'm talking about this voice in our head. I'm talking about the voice that all of us have, the voice that's constantly pounding, 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 talking, 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 judging, 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 deciding, doing, acting. I'm talking about that sense of ego. I'm talking about the little I, the I that's not really me. And I distinguish this ego from the deeper self, the spiritual, the pure, the light self that exists deeper inside of us. That self is, is quiet, peaceful, pure. But on top of that self is this ego, and all of us have it. And so it's not a pejorative to have an ego. We, we all have egos in the sense that there's always this little voice somewhere bubbling around inside of our head. And for people who don't think that they have one, all you have to do is be still for a few minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and just pay attention to what your mind is doing. And you'll notice that your mind is kind of running on autopilot, and all these thoughts are popping in and out all these impulses, ideas, judgments, just kind of flowing back and forth. It's kind of weird. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about ego. I'm talking about that voice. We've talked about this ego before on Mormon Awakenings podcast. And I suppose I ought to, just as an aside, I ought to think about changing the name of the podcast to something else. But I just haven't gotten around to it. Awakenings is too broad and it's not available. So I'll come up with something or not, or I'll just leave. I don't know. But we've talked about this ego a lot in past episodes of this podcast. 
And the reason I'm going to keep pounding away at ego is while as a community we do well when we talk about pride and we have a good sense of it, a good theology, a good intellectual background about what pride is and the dangers of pride, et cetera, et cetera. We do not, as a people, discuss ego in the sense that I just described it well in our community. We just don't. In fact, I don't think we talk explicitly about it at all. And what I mean is I don't think we as a community have ever come out and said, you know, there's a second voice inside your head. And this voice is always talking to you, pounding at you. It's making you do things. It's demanding your energy, your attention. It may or may not have your best interests at hand. It's almost like a living being with its own agenda inside of you, something you've got to conquer for sure. But first, before you do that, you got to notice that it's there. And that's something that we just don't talk about in our community. We don't talk about noticing and being mindful of ego. And I think that creates a lot of problems for us as a people. We're keen to follow the Spirit. We are, and we should be. I think that's a good goal. You know, you want to follow the Spirit. I believe in the Spirit. I believe in spiritual beings guiding us, inspiring us. I believe that we can receive guidance, inspiration from beyond. I don't think there's any limit to it. But until you step back a little bit and talk about ego and the difference between ego and your deeper self, it's pretty easy to get what sound like promptings from a third party inside your head. It's pretty easy to get those type of things, which I'm going to call ego, confused with real spiritual guidance with real spiritual communication. As many of you know, I teach the 12 and 13-year-olds in my ward. I've been doing that for coming up on six years now. It's a great calling. I love it. And we talk a lot about the fundamentals, the basics, first half of life stuff in my class. We talk about seeking guidance from beyond. And the question that invariably comes up year after year after year is, well, how do we know the difference between what we, what we think is from the Spirit and what's from our own mind? How do we know? And I don't think anyone can know until they start to pay attention and recognize their own ego first and begin to understand how their own ego drives them. Well, that's weird, but I think it's critical because spiritual communication in my view and in my experience is a deeper more subtle quiet type of thing that happens below ego below what ego is concerned about those are bold words from somebody who's not a general authority someone who's just a sunday school teacher in some far-flung ward way out in the mission field nonetheless i think that's a critical first step I also think, as an illustration, that many of our stories attempt to raise awareness of the power of the ego by illustrating stories in which the protagonist is driven by ego, sort of recognizes the ego, sets the ego aside, and then is better because of it. Many of our stories illustrate this process of learning and coming to terms with ego, and then the process of beginning to use the ego or the mind, or if you want to call this little voice in your head, the process of beginning to harness it and use it for your deeper self's more, more pure, more charitable motivations. Not only do our stories, our traditional stories, our scriptures, sometimes describe this process, this awakening, if you will, but so do many of the experiences that we have in day-to-day -day life. And so I want to tell two stories, one from the Old Testament, one from my town, so these two stories 
are separated by thousands of thousands of years. The story in the Old Testament was written 1500 B.C., 2000 B.C., who knows? The story that I'm going to tell you that occurred in my town, it's a true story, by the way, happened a year ago, so what's that? 5,000 year span in between the events of these two stories, which just as an aside is so interesting, right? I mean, 5,000 years of history, and it's just the same thing over and over and over and over and over for every generation. I find that intriguing, but we'll do a whole podcast about that later. But I want to start with the story that is the most recent. It's about this guy in my town, his name. Well, his I can't really tell you his name because even though it's extremely unlikely he's going to be listening to this podcast, he's not LDS, he's not what I would even call a seeker, certainly not awakened, not interested in things religious or spiritual. Although, maybe he's changed, I don't know. So I'm going to call this guy Mark. Mark is not his real name, but Mark does represent a real guy. And I used to know Mark and his family fairly well, but you know I haven't seen him for at least 10 years. I used to see him more because our kids used to attend the same elementary school together. Our kids are in college now. But when they were in elementary school, I used to see them at the school functions, and then sometimes people would have all the kids over to their house, and we'd see each other, and we were friendly. I liked them. Then when they got to secondary school, the kids all went off to different schools, and we just didn't see Mark. And then the kids went to college, and you know, so I sort of lost touch with Mark. I hadn't seen him in 10 years. Anyways, last Thanksgiving, I ran into Mark at the grocery store, and I said, hey, Mark, you know, how are you? You know, he hadn't changed at all physically. He looked exactly the same. I said, Mark, how are you? How, how is Mary? Again, his wife, not her real name. How's Mary? And Mark sort of shrugged and said, well, Mary passed away six months ago. Very suddenly, she was diagnosed with cancer. And about eight weeks from the diagnosis, she had passed away. And that had all happened about six months ago. And I said, oh, Mark, I'm so sad about that. I'm sorry. Mary was a saint, by the way. She was so very, very kind. So I offered my condolences and you know, sort of sobering, actually, to think that Mary just got sick and died. I mean, I, she wasn't that old. She was my age. I don't like to think of myself as being old enough that people of my generation are just getting sick and dropping dead. But I, I guess I'm approaching that time of life. Anyways, and then Mark accepted my condolences. And then he said, yeah, and I'm at home raising an 11-year-old all by myself. And I, I thought this sort of puzzled me because, you know, Mark's kids and my kids, they're in college now. And I don't remember Mark and Mary having a baby who would be, at this point, 11. But then I thought, well, you know, I haven't seen them in a long while, at least 10 years. So I thought maybe they have a caboose. And we made a few jokes about raising kids. And, you know, and then I left. When I got home, my daughter, who was home from college for Thanksgiving, was there. And so I told her about this run-in with Mark. And I said, yeah, and he's stuck at home raising this 11-year-old. I, did, I didn't realize Mark and Mary had an 11-year-old. And then my daughter was silent. She said, oh, Dad, you, you don't know the story, the real story. And I, I thought, well, what is the real story? And for some reason, my daughter knew the real story. Apparently, everyone in town knew the real story about Mark except for me. I hadn't been paying attention, but my daughter knew the real story, as turned out a lot of other people. Anyway, so my daughter told me, the real story about Mark. And here's the real story. Mark, for many years, 10 at least, probably longer, had a girlfriend on the side. He traveled a lot for his work. He made a lot of money. He was easily the richest guy I knew in town. Traveled a lot. He'd go to the West Coast a lot. In fact, for many years, he went weekly because that's where the business that he had established was based. 
And he was a native New Englander and thought it was a better place to raise kids, and so he relocated his family here, but he would go to the West often. And apparently Mark had a lady friend in the West and had been conducting an affair for 10, 11 years. And at the very beginning of this affair, his lady friend got pregnant and bore him a child. And so for the better part of a decade, Mark had kind of two families. Mary, of course, knew about none of this. She just thought that Mark was a hardworking guy. And, and when you talk to Mark, when you see him at things, he didn't seem like that kind of guy. He didn't seem like a playboy, someone who was living a completely double life. He seemed nice and normal and kind of dorky, kind of conservative, hardworking family guy. That's what he seemed like. Anyways... About a year before his wife Mary died, he went to her. And he said, Mary, I've got this other friend on the side, and we have a daughter, and I love her better than you, and I'm leaving you. His kids by this time were in college. His youngest had entered college. So I guess that was a good time to move on and raise the second family. So he said, Mary, we're done, and he left. And so he went out to the West Coast and was living with his mistress, and I don't know her at all. I don't know anything about her. But let's just presume that she's an okay person. She's not terrible. She just, whatever. She fell in love with this guy, had a kid, and Mark's getting ready to marry her. Can't, of course, because he's got a lot of details to work out with Mary. But he's living with her. And then his mistress gets sick. This is his mistress now, not Mary. She gets sick. So she goes in to the doctor to see what's going on, and she's diagnosed with cancer, and within six to eight weeks of the diagnosis, she's dead. Not sure what the kind of cancer it was, but it was aggressive, advanced. So now Mark, who's left Mary for this woman and his love child, finds that his mistress has died, and he has the love child. So Mark goes back to Mary, because remember, the divorce is not final. They haven't worked out any of those details, so he goes back to Mary. He says, oh, gee, Mary, uh, on second thought, uh, my mistress, she has died. And here I am with our love child. And um, if you could see it in your heart to take me back, and maybe we could raise this love child of mine as our own. What do you, what do you say, Mary? That's what Mark says to Mary. Credible. And Mary, of course, because she's a saint, sort of shrugs her shoulders and Says, fine, you're welcomed here still, and so is your child. As Christmas approached that year, Mary included the child in the family photo that went out to their 500 friends, which I'm just realizing now did not include me because I would have known this. Anyways, so Mary sends out this Christmas card to their 500 friends, and she formally introduces this child, this daughter, and writes in the letter that she sends out that here's our new child. We're so happy. We welcome her. Mary's quite the saint. And when you talk to Mary, you know you, you knew she was a saint when you talked to her. She was, she was wonderful. She's beautiful. Kind and warm and down to earth. Well, about a month or two after that Christmas card went out, Mary got sick. She goes to the doctor. It turns out she's got aggressive cancer. And then this time I think it was pancreatic cancer. And six to eight weeks from the diagnosis, then she dies. And Mark is left alone with this child. 
the two loves of his life, both of whom he was unfair to, both of whom he, I'm sure he deceived. He certainly deceived Mary. I'm speculating about how much he deceived his mistress, but I can't imagine he wasn't deceiving her. The massive amount of trust that had been destroyed over the years between Mark and these women, well, they've both passed on. And Mark's left here to raise his 11-year-old. And that's the 11-year-old that Mark was referring to. Mark didn't tell me about any of these sort of details when I ran into him at the store last Thanksgiving. Now he, I mean, maybe he thought I already knew. I don't know. But he just mentioned the daughter. What a strange, strange tale of selfishness, of incredible cluelessness, especially in regards to Mark. How clueless was he? But then also of Mary, his long-suffering wife, humble, charitable, forgiving. And then the tragedy of these two women, their deaths, and then the daughter who's left motherless. It's an incredible tale, in my view, of the ravages of unchecked ego. Not unchecked bravado and conceit, but unchecked ego in the sense that I described it earlier in the podcast. An unchecked voice, an unchecked driver, an unchecked second you, a little you. And in this case, a little Mark that had totally hijacked him, led him into situations that no rational, sane person, no thoughtful, charitable person would ever consider, but Therein is the illogical insanity of unchecked ego. This amoral, fluid, flexible, fast voice being inside our head that leads us to do things that in our right mind we would never do, but things which over time our ego somehow convinces us is normal because it's hijacked our sensibilities. But life has a way of offering us wake-up calls through experience. And one thing I am certain of, well, pretty certain, is that Mark has been thinking about just what happened to him and his two women and how he got from point A to point B. And in that sense, the experience, like all experience, is instructive. And when the universe and when the spiritual beings in our lives start to teach us, they begin with the fundamentals, I think, of pointing out, making us recognize ego. Now, we don't know if Mark has learned or incorporated any of the obvious lessons of this experience in his life, but it's my opinion that this experience is not coincidental. That experience is good and instructive, and it was both good and instructive in his case. And I think one of the lessons we're constantly being taught is, you know, if you're driven by your ego alone, and you're not aware of your ego and its agenda, you might find yourself doing things that are insane. Because a little voice in your head that other you, that little you, it's insane. And it wants you to think that it is you, but it's not. And when you end up in situations or you experience events that you couldn't have even imagined would ever happen to you, it makes you start to ask questions that bring your attention towards the recognition of this ego, I think. And the dangers of leaving it, your ego, unbridled and unrecognized. Because you got to recognize it and work with it and bridle it first. And sometimes just being told abstractly that it's there is not enough. Because you don't believe, you think that's dumb. you got to have a certain amount of experience with it. And all the mayhem that it, your ego, unbridled, can produce. That's a first step. Now some of us have a natural ability to pick up on these sort of things very early in life. And notice it 
during fairly inconsequential low-stakes activities, playing sports, being in math class. Some people are just really good at noticing the impulses of their ego and, and recognizing them and taking a proactive approach to them. Some people are just preternaturally born that way, it seems anyways. Mary, I think, was one of those people. She had an ego for sure, like we all do. But I think Mary, unlike Mark, learned to recognize and address certainly the insane impulses of her ego. And as evidence, I present to you the Christmas card photo in which Mary, after her husband told her he didn't love her anymore, loved someone else better, had a love child, then returned to her with that love child, chose instead of recrimination, anger, she chose instead to welcome that child include that child in their family photograph that she sent out to 500 of her closest friends. Apparently, I'm not one of those. Still smarting a little bit about that. My ego is anyways. Took Mark back because that's what the being below the ego, that's what a being of light and truth and love can do. And Mary, unlike Mark, used her mind and her ego as a tool to further her own ends of welcoming this child of making things right. And I'm sure all during this process, her own ego, Mary's that is, was clamoring inside her own head saying, this is insane. You're going to look like a jerk. You ought to strike back. But she didn't. She chose to ignore her ego. And of course, you can't ignore something you don't know is there. And you can't ignore something that you think is you. You can only ignore things that you know are there and you know they're not you, which is what the ego is second story I want to tell you about is the story of Judah found in Genesis, written, you know, who knows, anywhere between four and 6,000 years ago. Judah, as you know, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, renamed Israel. Judah and his brothers conspired to sell Joseph into Egypt because they thought he was a smarty pants, a weasel, a goody two-shoes, for all sorts of reasons. Given why Judah and his brothers decided to sell Joseph, their younger brother, into Egypt, I can't imagine my two older brothers selling me into Egypt. Nonetheless, that's what Judah did. And Judah really was a ringleader in that whole cause. In fact, Judah wanted to kill Joseph. That's what kind of guy Judah was. But Reuben talked him out of it. So Judah and his brothers sold Joseph instead of killing him. Judah does redeem himself later in the story. The brothers reunite with Joseph 17 years after they've sold him into slavery. And he's risen to be the number two guy in Egypt. And Judah redeems himself by offering to stand in the place of the accused Benjamin. Anyways, later in Genesis, there's this very odd tale about Judah, an additional tale about Judah and Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. She was married to Judah's son, Ur, but Ur was unrighteous, so Ur was struck down dead because he was unrighteous. But Tamar, through marriage, has become part of the family. And so Judah says, well, why don't you marry my second son, Onan? And Onan and you can raise up seed, a posterity, in Ur's name. That's the way it worked then in ancient Canaan. So that's what happened. Tamar married her husband's younger brother, Onan. And Onan was supposed to impregnate Tamar and then raise up a posterity for Ur. Although that's kind of implied. We're not sure if they were actually married. We think they were married. But whether they were married or not, Onan was supposed to impregnate Tamar and then they were supposed to have seed. And this was going to be attributed to Ur. So that's what happened. Onan goes in, wedding night. We're not sure when exactly, but he goes to impregnate Tamar. But at the last second, Onan has second thoughts and fails to complete the task, and Tamar doesn't become pregnant. And this is, in the eyes of the Lord, evil. And so Onan is then struck dead. 
So now two of Judah's boys are dead. And Judah, instead of thinking this is bizarre, moves forward and promises his third son, Shelah, to Tamar. And Shelah's not old enough to marry Tamar. So Judah tells Tamar, look, go wait a little while. And when Shelah comes of age, you can marry him. And then he'll give you a posterity. So Tamar thinks, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And she goes to live with her parents. And she waits for Shelah to grow up. And we're not sure if Shelah is one at the time that Tamar goes to live with her parents or if he's 16, but we know she's got to wait a little while. So she does that. She goes to live with her parents. Well, Shelah does grow up and Shelah falls in love with some other girl and then he marries her. And Tamar hears about this through the grapevine. All the while, she's been waiting for Shelah to grow up so that she can be married and have her own posterity in Judah's house. And when she finds out that Shelah has gone, and not only has he fallen in love with someone else, not only is he dating someone else, I suspect they were dating, but he goes and marries someone else, and no one tells her. And she's, she's ticked, rightfully. So Tamar decides to take things into her own hands, and she plays one of the all-time incredible tricks on Judah. On the road to Timnah, which apparently was a frequently traveled road, especially during shearing season, if you had flocks of sheep, which Judah did, Well, on this road to Timnah, Tamar set up a little tent and covered herself with a veil and started advertising herself as a prostitute, a prostitute on the road to Timnah. And she knew that Judah would be traveling along this road because it was shearing season after all. And Judah's wife had died a couple years earlier, so she knew that Judah might be tempted. And Tamar was right. Judah was tempted, and he stopped at the tent of Tamar, who had disguised herself as a prostitute, and he hired the veiled Tamar for these services. And when they're done with the deed, Judah stands up and girds his loins and is, gets ready to head back to Timnah or back to the farm or home or where, you know, who knows what direction he's going. But he's, he says, thanks a lot, oh prostitute, veiled prostitute. Uh, I'll see you later. Uh, is the standard fee a goat? If it is, I'll have one of my men send you a goat. Tamar says, yes, the fee is a goat. I guess that's the standard cost of a trick for the Johns of Genesis. Anyways, that's the fee. They agree upon this. And as he's leaving, Tamar says, well, but wait, how will I know that you really will send me a goat? Why don't you leave me something for security? So Judah says, yeah, this is probably an okay idea. So he gives her his staff, his seal, and his cord as security. And I think the staff and the cord are fairly self-explanatory, but I'm not quite sure exactly what the seal is. I think it might be his ring or a way to make an ancient imprint, I'm not exactly sure. But it's easily identifiable with Judah. It's his, his seal. Anyways, he gets home and he says to his man, his Adullamite slave, see here, slave, take a goat to the shrine prostitute along the road to Timnah. So the Adullamite, his slave, does that. He takes a goat, hustles back to Timnah, and there's no prostitute there. Tamar's packed up her tent, and she split. The Dolomite shrugs his shoulders and heads back to Judah and says, I didn't find a prostitute. And Judah thinks, oh, well, guess that was a freebie. Well, a little while after that, Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. Tamar, his daughter-in-law. The same Tamar who he had promised Shelah to, the same Tamar he forgot to tell that Shelah had gotten married, that Tamar. Still, he was offended that she was suddenly pregnant. He knows that she's not married. And he's got some sort of rights over her as a former daughter-in-law. And he storms over to Tamar and he says, look, I'm going to, you know, throw the book at you. We're going to have you killed by fire, which was the punishment at the time for getting pregnant out of wedlock, that you'd be burned alive. So Judah says, I'm going to, you know, 
killed this Tamar. What a sleazy girl she is. Of course, Judah has no recollection of his own encounter with the prostitute. I mean, this must have been a frequent thing for him, just kind of a thing that he did from time to time. and must have been so frequent that he just didn't give it a second thought. So he says, let's have her burned. And then Tamar pulls out the ace up her sleeve. And she says, it was by this man that I'm pregnant. See if you recognize this cord and this staff and this seal. How I would like to go back into time and see the look on Judah's face when he realized the seal was his and that Tamar was the veiled prostitute that he visited on the road to Timnah. And while all these salacious details are interesting, and they, and they are interesting, it's, high, it's a highly entertaining story. You ought to read it. What really makes this story powerful is at the end when Judah says, she, Tamar, is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shela. That's the punchline, if you will, of this story. That's the payoff. That Judah recognized what he had done. He recognized that Tamar was more righteous than he that something in Judah woke up and he had time to think about just how he ended up in the prostitute's tent on the road to Timnah to begin with. Who was making his decisions for him? Him or his ego? What voice was he listening to? The deep, pure voice of light or the ever-clamoring ego with all its confusions and strange logics? and rationalizations that happen so fast you hardly even notice it unless you do notice it. Two stories, two weird stories, modern and ancient, involving deaths, salacious immorality, children born out of wedlock, all experiences with purpose, I think, as all experiences are. All experiences have purpose, instructional, developmental, all experience teaching the most foundational lesson of the difference between ego and you. What's interesting about both these stories is the children that these seemingly highly immoral acts produced. In the case of Tamar, she bore Judah twins, Perez and Zerah, and Zerah was a direct ancestor of Christ himself. Well, that's interesting. Christ didn't come through Joseph's line, Joseph, who was nominally more righteous, at least on the surface. No, Christ came through the illegitimate twin of Judah and his daughter-in-law, former, still not what one would think of as the pure bloodline for the most important figure in Christianity. And what about Mark's daughter? Innocent, unaware, presumably, of all the details, sordid and otherwise between her father, her mother, her stepmother, and then left motherless at the end, it's hard to figure out the eternal calculus in her experience, in the situation of her birth. But I have lived long enough and seen enough of the unexpected to know none of this is without instructional purpose. We have to practice noticing. We have to practice the constant attention that staying one step ahead of our ego requires. This requires practice. Otherwise, you'll be hijacked by it. Otherwise, it'll drive you to do things over days and weeks and years and decades that you are completely unaware of, that you are not awake to. Partially, that's why this podcast is called Mormon Awakenings. It's important that we awaken to the fact 
that there's a second voice in our head and the impulses and the thoughts and the clamoring that goes on upstairs in our brain is not us. We can step out of it and watch it and judge it for ourselves and react to it the way we want to, not the way it wants us to, which after all is to just do what it says. All of our personalities are a little bit split in that sense. And the first thing I think life is teaching us through experience, through instruction, through events large and small, is to be aware of it and to know your ego is not you. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. We'll talk more about ego in subsequent episodes of Mormon Awakenings. Until next time.